You are listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Chapter 1, James chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse number 1 in a moment. Uh, I'll tell you, it's been a weird week. Uh, it's been a weird probably few weeks, and uh, yet God has been faithful to us, but we want to this morning to be praying for our brothers and sisters in the Bahamas and in the Carolinas as they had to deal with the storm uh, this past week. And so as weird as our week may have been, theirs has been much much tougher and much worse than ours. And so at the end of our service this morning, we normally uh, take up a, a benevolence offering, which is uh, the first Sunday of the month, but because we had to shift some things around, today is the first Sunday of the month for us today. And we're going to be taking up an offering that will be going to help our Baptist Global re- Response as we go and help uh, those in the Bahamas. Uh, as soon as the storm passed by, uh, our people that we partner with were immediately on the field and assessing and are bringing relief and help. So we want to support them. We know that they are good stewards of the resources that we give them. So at the end of our service, we'll be giving that. You say, I'm not prepared to give an offering for that. Well, you can easily go online to do that and go on our website and, and, and there's a little bar that goes down that says disaster relief and you can give to that 100% will go and help those that are affected uh, by the hurricanes and we need to just continue to pray for God's protection uh, over them uh, even in this time so let's pray together father in heaven we thank you for how faithful you have been to us how faithful that you have been uh, to us in the midst of all that's going on this past week but lord we know uh, that you're still faithful to the people in the Bahamas and the coastal Carolinas and Father, we pray uh, for them that are uh, going through these difficult seasons. And Lord, we pray for the believers, the Bahamian believers that are there. And uh, God, we pray for the church that's there, that they would raise up, uh, rise up and, and, and bless their brothers and sisters. Father, we pray for those in the Carolinas. God, we pray, Lord, for those who have lost loved ones. And we pray, God, that what, what, what little offerings we can bring, that you would multiply and use for your honor and your glory. God, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus this morning, help us to have ears to hear. Uh, what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, would you stand as we read God's word in James chapter 1 and verse number 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect in you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who, gives to all, who generously gives to all without reproach and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like, like, a, like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that one ought not to suppose that they will receive any that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. Uh, let the lowly uh, brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation, for like the flower of the grass they will pass away. For the sun uh, rises and scorches uh, the flower of the, the, the flower of grass. Uh, and its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, and so shall a rich man in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who has, uh, 
who has remained steadfast under trials, for when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You may be seated. You know, when I was in college, which seems like wasn't long ago, but every day gets longer than the day before, I took a few classes. And while I was in the middle of these classes, I thought, you know what? Why in the world am I learning this stuff? This stuff is useless. It's not going to help me. One of the classes that I had to take, which was a prerequisite at the University of Kentucky, was calculus. And I took it. And I remember one time before a test, I said, God, if you help me pass it, I promise I will forget it as soon as this test is over. <laughs> and I want you to hear me this morning that I honored and I did what I promised the Lord. And I can't remember a living, breathing thing uh, of calculus anymore. And I thank God for that. But you know, there are a lot of colleges that offer a lot of kind of, I, I think, kind of useless classes. Uh, I read this week an article that talked about like the top 30 useless classes that are offered by major public universities uh, and other just other even private universities. One, Cornell, which is an Ivy League school, offers the class tree climbing. So if you want to know how to climb a tree, uh, go to Cornell. The University of South Carolina offers a class Lady Gaga and the Sociology of Fame. So, you know, those of you Lady Gaga fans out there, none of you should admit it. Um, there's your class. Uh, Montclair State, um, which is up in, in, the, in New England area, I believe, they offer how to watch television. So I guess all you do is watch TV. Uh, Caltech offers the amazing world of bubbles. And so you can learn, I guess, how to blow bubbles. Uh, the University of Virginia offers Game of Thrones. The University of Iowa offers the American Vacation. But I think the best one of all, the, uh, the, uh, the Michigan State University offers surviving the, the, pardon me, surviving the Coming Zombie Apocalypse. So if any of you are worried about that, then you need to go to the University, uh, uh, Michigan State University and learn how to deal with that. Now, listen, as I read this, I thought there are parents who have spent thousands of dollars for their kids to learn this junk, and it will not help them in the real world. It will not help them get a job. At best, it may help them to live on the couch in their parents' house until they're 45. I mean, at best. And the reason I bring this up is because most people don't live in the clouds. Most people don't necessarily live in the philosophical world. Most people live in the real world. And most of you, when you come to church, what you kind of want is you want what is going to help me make it this week. You know, Adrian Rogers, the great pastor, said this. He said that most people don't care about heaven or hell. They just want to know how to hack it on Monday. Well, if that's where you are this morning, the book of James is, is very apropos for you. It is probably the most practical book in the New Testament written by a pastor, written by the half-brother of Jesus, who is James, who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And he is writing to believers who are scattered all around the Roman Empire, who are going through grave persecution and tough times and hardships. He is writing to them to encourage them, to challenge them, and, and to point them to their need to have faith that is functional. Now, there have been a lot of people that say, I don't like the book of J James because it seems to be contradictory to Paul. But I want you to understand this. We go through the book, we're going to see that James does not contradict Paul, but I think he actually compliments Paul. And we're going to see the gospel is found all throughout the book of James. However, James is not some theological um, treaty uh, like the book of Romans. It's not some in-depth uh, 
explanation of soteriology, but it is practical, functional living. So what James does is he begins his book is he gets immediately into the nitty-gritty, and he says one verse to kind of introduce himself, and then boom, in verse number two, he gets to his first item of agenda, and his first item of agenda is he wants to talk about how functional faith, how faith that is that, that works in any contingency in life, how it responds to trials. How does it respond to hardship? How does it re- respond to tough situations? And these readers that were reading this, this was like, well, this is apropos. This is for me because they, I'm, I'm going through a tough season. So here's the, the premise of the message this morning, right here. When trials come, we can joyfully trust God Because he is good, and he's using them to make us more like Jesus. So that is what James is going to get at as we read this passage of Scripture, that when we're going through trials, when they come, we can trust God. We can have functional faith to know that God is good, and he is working those things together for our good. So let's look here at three things this morning to kind of help us understand what James is getting at here in chapter number one. The first thing I want you to see is the reality of trials, the reality of trials. He says in verse number two, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The first thing you'll notice here is that James does not say if, James uses the word when. It's not if you're going to go through a tough time, not if you're going to go through a test of your faith, it's when you do, because all believers, regardless of who they are, are going to have seasons of hardship, headache, and head-scratching situations. No one is immune. Suffering is the universal experience of every believer, regardless of who you are. Now, it's like, it's like us living in Florida. It's not if a hurricane comes, but when a hurricane comes. The same is true for believers. It's not if suffering comes, but when suffering comes. And you, you may be here like, Pastor, I've not really had a tough season in my life. Well, shut your mouth, <laughs> because it's coming. As a matter of fact, it's been said that all of us are in one of three categories. One, we're, we're in a storm. Two, we're just coming out of a storm, or three, we're heading into one. So some of you are like, man, pastor, I'm I'm going through a good time. This is a good season in my life. I I hope all those people that are going through tough times this morning will listen to this message. And and then others of you are like, you know what, pastor, I just kind of barely made it here this morning, and I'm struggling, and I need a good word from God this morning. Well, that's what James has for us this morning. He says that we're to count it all joy when you meet trials. The word meet can mean to fall into, or they kind of come upon you. Very uh, trials, uh, testings of various kinds. Now he uses this kind of generic term. The word in the Greek is literally where we get our word polka dot from. It means trials of various colors. He uses a generic term to talk about any kind of trial that would come into your life, any kind of testing, any kind of difficult situation, whether it be minor or major, short term or long term, whether it be physical, emotional, financial, relational, or spiritual. James is saying this that it is sure that tests are going to come. But these tests are going to be different for different people, and they're going to come at different times. Some are going to be aggravating, some are going to be frustrating, and some are going to be devastating. But don't be surprised when they come, because they're going to come. And the reason why is because this world is broken. See, James is no prosperity preacher. James understands the reality of living in a fallen world that is broken. And as long as Christ has not returned, there is sin that is still present in this world. And because of that, life is not easy. People, from regardless of who they are, are going to go through tough seasons. You know, one of the problems of our day is that we put up the veneer that everything is okay. In social media, everyone's picture, no one puts a sad 
picture on Facebook. No one puts a sad picture on Instagram. No one puts, oh, I'm going through a difficult tragedy. Most of the time, now sometimes it, maybe you say, well, what about all those people in Bahamas and those videos that we saw? But most of the time, we put in the most polished persona that everything in our life is going okay. But yet the reality is that this world is not okay. And if you're honest this morning, your life is not always okay. That life is hard and this world is sometimes horrible and we can't sugarcoat it. The one of the reasons that God gave us the church is so that we can be real. So many churches, they, they, they make it their number one priority and their number one goal to be as so polished and so and, and so perfect as possible. Everyone on the stage is happy. Every song you sing is happy. Everyone who runs around is happy. It's like you think you're at Disney World. But the truth, reality of it is, is that yes, we want to be happy people because Jesus died to save us. And he rose from the dead to give us eternal life. But to be honest with you, sometimes it's good to be in church and just be real. And the one thing that I love about our church is that we're authentic. And we're going to make mistakes and we're going to be real. As a matter of fact, if you're coming to church looking for mistakes, you can find tons of them here. But yet, that's what the church is meant to be. It's meant to be a place that's real and raw and a place where we can be vulnerable. But James here is trying to let us understand early on that no matter how good you think you are or how holy you think you're living, there's going to be trouble. Jesus promised it in John chapter 14. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. And then he said, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Job said that man that is born of a woman is but a few days and full of trouble. Augustine said that God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you encounter fiery trials of your faith. Don't like, oh, I can't believe this happened to me. No, it's real and it's going to happen. And James does not want us to be ignorant of that. But then he goes on and not only gives us the reality of trials, but he also gives us the reasons for trials. Now again, his, his, his underarching command here in verses 1 through 4 essentially is count or consider all your trials as joy. Now if you think about that for a moment, that seems counterintuitive. It almost seems irrational. You're telling me, James, that I'm to, to be happy? I'm to... Uh, in, I am to enjoy trials. James is not saying you're to enjoy trials or even to be happy or put on a happy face during trials. But what he's saying is you can have joy. So there's a great difference between happiness and joy. Happiness depends on what happens. If your hap happenstance is good, then you're happy. If your happenstance is bad, you're unhappy. But joy depends on the Lord. You know what I've found? That most of our lives are set up to avoid hardships. Most of the things that we do, if you think about it, just kind of think and calculate the different things that you do in your life, you try to do everything you can to avoid going through tough seasons. Nobody that's in their right mind, unless they're crazy, wants to go through hardships. No one just intentionally runs over nails so they can have a flat tire on the way to work. And our thought is typically this. If I can avoid the hardship, if I can avoid the trial, then I can have joy. But yet James is telling us that's not always the case because you can't avoid them. And since you can't avoid trials and since you can't avoid hardship, you can learn how to have joy in them. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4, and he says, In our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. That seems, again, counterintuitive. 
That seems crazy. How can they do this? How can James say this? How can Paul say that he failed this? And it goes back to this command where James says, count it. The idea of counting is not how you feel. The idea of counting is how you think. It all has to do with your mindset. Our feelings should be dictated by our thoughts, not our thoughts by our feelings. And what happens is, is that feelings come and feelings go and feelings are kind of deceiving. And so if we just simply live our lives based on how we feel, we're going to be a wreck. Sometimes, you know, when we're going through difficult situations, our feelings will lead us to say things to God and about God that are not true of God. We'll look at God and we'll say, God, why if you're so good, why if you're so loving? You say a thousand times in the Bible how much you love me. Why is it that you allow this difficulty to come into my life? You are unfair. You are the problem, God. And what James is saying is, listen, do not let how you feel dictate what you know. You need to allow what you know to dictate how you feel. And so he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice verse number two. He says, for you know. You know. What do you know? You know in verse number three that the testing of your faith, the trials of your faith, produces steadfastness. It produces toughness. In other words, it gives us staying power. Stickability. Steadfastness is having a fixed direction and a firmness of purpose that no matter what, I'm sticking with it. A lot of people don't have steadfastness. They have runaway fastness. But we're, ha we're called to steadfastness. It's like if you're a runner and you are, you are to mile five or mile six or mile 14 or whatever, some of you people that run really, really far. And you're in that moment where your body is, is aching and your mind is starting to play tricks on you. You're like, you can't go on. You can't go on at that moment. You feel like quitting, but you continue on because you are going to stick with it in this direction because you have this purpose. That's what James is saying. He's saying that trials, the testing of your faith, produces steadfastness. It produces toughness. That when the going gets tough, the tough keep going. It grows you. Someone says that faith is like a muscle. You know, muscles grow stronger and stronger the more they're used, the more that they're pushed. The more you stress a muscle, the more you stress it to its limit, the stronger that muscle gets. The more resistance, the, the greater the capacity it builds to endure. So that's why I work out and I lift weights. And when I lift weights, I try to go heavier and heavier so that my muscles grow and grow. And I would show you my muscle right now, but I don't want to rip this shirt. And so I, I'll refrain from doing that this morning. But what you want to get at is this, is that as your faith grows, your faith, as one person says, is like a muscle, and it grows and it grows and it grows, and, and it grows only when it's pushed. But muscles that are not pushed, muscles that are not used, they atrophy. They fall apart. They're, they're weak. You know, in the natural world, we know that failure and difficulty and hard times teach us more than anything else. We, we learn more from failure and messing up and scraping our knees and getting burnt than we do anything else. And so the same is true in the spiritual world. So, Paul, so James here is saying, listen, you know 
that, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, not only in the physical, natural world, but also in the spiritual world. But then in verse number four, he says this, but let steadfastness have its full effect. Here's what I've learned about patience. You don't learn patience in a hurry. James is saying, don't rush it. Don't run from it. You know what a lot of us do when we're in trials? We, we run from God. We're going through a tough situation, and, and, and instead of praying more, we pray less because we think, well, I've been praying all these years, and it didn't do any good. Or we stop reading the Word because, we say, you know, I've been reading the Bible and praying for years, and it didn't seem like it's got me anywhere. Here's the mess that I'm in, or I'm going to get away from church. And what happens is, is that when trials come... Sometimes we just say, you know what, I tried the church, it didn't work, so I'm going to go try something else. But James here is saying, let it have its effect. If you're going to go through a trial, you might as well learn from the trial. Don't fast track it, don't short circuit it, don't waste a good crisis. Because the Christian life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. You learn patience, not from a microwave, but from a crock pot. Some of the best meals I've ever had come out of a crock pot, not a microwave. Like if you come home after church and your wife says, all right, I'm going to give you a choice, a hot pocket or roast beef. I can zap her in a minute and you'll have a hot pocket, may even have a lean pocket for those of you worried about your weight. Or you can have a slow cooking roast with potatoes and carrots and the glory of God. Some of you are hot pocket Christians. And you wonder why your faith doesn't last. But when you've feasted on the roast beef of trials. And you've learned from them. It sustains you. See life is not a Polaroid. It's, I mean life is more like a Polaroid not an Instagram. It takes time to develop. You remember the Polaroid cameras? Some of you middle schoolers are like, what's that? It's these cameras that you took and you, you would take and instantly a picture would come out, but it wouldn't come out immediately. You had to give it some time to develop. And so a lot of people, what they would do to speed up the process, they'd start shaking it. Shake it, shake it, you know what I mean? Like, you shake it off or shake, what's that girl that sings that song? Shake it, whatever. We won't talk about her. She's a heathen. No, I'm just kidding. But you shake it. And what happens is the colors would run together. It wouldn't be fully developed because you're trying to rush the process. That's how Christian, he says, let it have its full effect. Why that? that whenever you say that, that's a, that's a purpose, that you may be perfect. He's not saying you're going to be sinless, but that you're going to be developed and complete. The word complete there, we actually get our word holograph from. It's a, it's a, a depiction of an object. So here he's saying that you're not deficient in any part. Now, a metaphor that, that is actually here with the whole idea of testing is how you take a metal that, that has impurity in it. And when it's heated up, it melts and the impurities fall away and what's left is that pure metal and, 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 it, and it becomes perfect. It becomes complete. It becomes, what, it's, it becomes not lacking anything. And when we endure the heat and the trials of our faith, it, it takes away the, the dross. It takes away the, the, the impurities and what's left is, is the purity of our faith. And that's what James is saying. He says that when you go through these trials, you need to allow these trials to have their work so that you can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Paul Tripp put it this way. He says, God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Let me say that again. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. See, the only way you're going to be more like Christ, the only way you're going to have more patience, the only way you're going to have more love and mercy and empathy, and the more you're going to be able to, to experience all that God wants for your life is something you cannot achieve on your own. And so Paul Tripp continues, he said, these trials in your life are not a sign of God's unfaithfulness or His inattention, but are a sure sign of God's transforming love and His amazing grace. So for some of you that are going through a lot of trials, here's some good news. God really loves you. He really does. See, trials expose our hearts and exposes what we're clinging to. See, how you and I respond to difficulty reveals what's important to us and what we value. So if our heart is ruled by comfort, we get angry when we get uncomfortable. If our heart is ruled by power and control, we get really anxious. We get really upset when things are out of our control. When our, when our heart is controlled by people's affirmation of us, then we get discouraged and depressed when people don't give us the affirmation that we crave. It exposes. Trials ultimately make us more like Christ. You know, here's the thing that you've got to understand. God is sovereign. And God can achieve something in us through difficulties that He could not achieve through us in any other way. And James is going to say, and we're going to talk about this next week, that, that you cannot say that God is the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of sin. But God will allow suffering. He will allow evil into our lives because we live in a fallen, broken world to do something in our lives that's actually for our good. That which the enemy means for evil, God can take and use for good, that He is sovereign. Where God does not rule, He ultimately overrules. And so whatever situation is going on in your life, He is making you more like Jesus. Because you will never be more like Jesus until you suffer. See, trials transform our hearts like nothing else. Changes our hearts to be more patient, to be more loving, to be more content to be more thankful, to be more caring, to be more empathetic, to be more merciful, just like Jesus. So James here is saying, you can embrace trials with joy, not just endure them. You can, you can see them as joy, not, not to grin and bear it or fake it till you make it, but to essentially say, you know what, God, I'm not, I don't like this. I'm not really happy with this, but I'm going to see that there's a bigger picture that's going on here, and I'm going to choose joy rather than bitterness. But let me give you the last point, and that's the resources for the trials. God gives us a resource. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Who is that? Everybody. All of, in this, all of us in this room and those who are watching online and those who came to the first service, all of us lack wisdom. But if you lack it, ask God. You know, when trials come, confusion comes. Like, what happens when people go through difficulties? They run around like chickens with their heads cut off, right? What do you need? What do I need the most when trials come? I need wisdom. Don't you need wisdom? 
Wisdom is the art of skillful living. It's living life the way God wants us to live. It's, it's living life that's understanding of God's guidance and living in God's perspective. And when you go through difficulties, it's not a time for you to prove how much you've got life figured out. See, what we need when we're going through trials is we need God's guidance. We need his wisdom. We need to know what to do, how to do it, and when to do it. That's what we need the most. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my, one, of my, one of my kids had a, had a bike accident and almost literally impaled himself with the handlebar of his bike. And I, I was actually sitting in my office. I was talking to a guy and sharing the gospel with him, right in the middle of sharing the gospel with him. And, and I get this FaceTime call from my daughter saying, uh, your son is bleeding out everywhere. Come home. And then she hung up. And I'm in the middle of sharing the gospel. Like, I'm in this moment to where this person's about to become a believer, coming to death and life. And, and look, my, my soteriology says that God is sovereign in that whole situation. But in that moment, here's the moment. And so I kind of felt like George W. Bush on 9-11 when he heard about the towers. Heard the news, but just kind of sit there and just continued on. And I, my phone kept ringing, and I would answer it. And I was sharing the gospel. Answer the phone, share the gospel, answer the phone, share the gospel, answer the phone. Finally, the, the guy got saved, and I immediately rushed to urgent care to meet them right there. And I, this isn't a long period of time. I don't want you to think I'm that bad of a dad. It was only about two or three hours later. But anyway, just kidding. But, but so eventually, so I, I come there, and I meet April there. She just gets in there to the urgent care, and there Andrew is. And, and, and it wasn't as bloody as I thought, as my daughter made it out to be. And yet he, he did kind of have it where it kind of poked in there. And then so we're trying to decide what should we do. Should we send him by ambulance? Should we Because they say you need to go to a children's hospital because we can't do anything here. And I'm like, am I saying, well, why in the world did we come here if you can't do anything? But anyway, and, and so we went there and I go, well, should we do the ambulance? Should I just drive him? Is he bleeding? Can he just drink a water and take an aspirin and go home? And what's the deal here? What should I do? And I'm like, I need guidance. And so in that moment, I asked God for wisdom. And so we went and we took care of him and God is merciful and he's going to live. <laughs> but what, did I, what do I need in that moment? I need wisdom. You know what happens when you go through a difficulty? You know what most of us do? We start calling people. And what do we look for? Well, we look for encouragement, but you know what most of the time we're looking for is advice. We need to know what should I do in this situation? How should I live it? And there's nothing wrong with seeking advice when you're going through difficult situations. But here's the greatest advice that James gives us. He says, if you are in a trial in your faith and you need wisdom, ask God. You know, when life is fine, I'm really good with relying on my own wisdom. I don't really need to trust God because I think I've got it all figured out. But when the trial hits, I kind of get upset at God and say, God, that's not fair. What, what are you doing in this? And so we all have a tendency of getting mad or getting bitter at God. And the reason why is because we lack wisdom. Because what we need is we need not just God's guidance, but we need God's perspective. See, God sees the individual, he sees the global, and he sees the eternal. You know, the cool thing about God is the same God who upholds the universe by the power of his, of his hands and his voice is the same God who cares individually about your life. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. He knows the number of hairs on your head, and for me, it's less every day. He knows everything individually about your life, but yet he still holds the world in his hands. And he's got a perspective of what's going on. 
And what you and I need when we go through the trial is we need His perspective. We need an eternal perspective. We need a bigger picture. In verses 9 through 11, it seems a little disjointed. But what James is almost talking about here, or what he is talking about here, is he's talking about an eternal perspective. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because it doesn't matter who you are, death gets everybody. And money does not last. And you can, you can pursue riches, but it's going to fade away because there's a bigger perspective that mo- nothing really lasts. Money doesn't last. Life on earth doesn't last. And what I found that a lot of us, when we're going through difficulties, we, content, we look at other people's lives and we compare their lives with ours and our lives with theirs. And we say, how is it that that person seems to just have a perfect life, everything is great, and my life stinks? And have you ever done that? You're all a bunch of liars. We've all done that. We compare ourselves. And what we need is we need a bigger picture. We need to see life from God's perspective. We need to see that in our trials that God is maturing us, making us more like Jesus, emptying us of the things that we're relying on and doing a greater work in our lives. Because trials cause us to acknowledge our utter dependence on God and not ourselves. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. See, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He said, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. They were literally under the sentence of death. And there was nothing that they could do about it. He says, But that, that sentence of death that was in our life, was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says that I had in my life a situation where there was nothing I could do but trust God. That's every situation in life, isn't it? You know, we had this hurricane that, that came around, Hurricane Dorian. And we had all these spaghetti models. And all this modern technology to track the storm. Do you realize that now we can track a storm that 100 years ago, people had no idea was coming? There are things that we can do. And you have meteorologists. And here's the thing about meteorologists. You have to understand, they're just like doctors. They're still practicing. And here's what a meteorologist can do. A meteorologist can track a storm, but they can't change the track of the storm. And so listen, we can't. We can track, but we can't change the track. But God can. And we need to trust Him, not ourselves. So he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all. He gives generously. He gives and He gives. God is a generous God. He desires to dispense wisdom. If you ask Him, He will give it to you. He says He'll give it to all, not just to select. He'll give it to anyone, and He does it without reproach. The whole idea there is without finding fault. How many of you, when you've gone through a tough situation, have done some pretty dumb things? I know I have. And yet, when you come to this point where you come to God and you say, God, I need wisdom God's not going to shake his head at you and say, you know what, I told you so. No wisdom for you. No, in the face of our foolishness, foolishness, he is generous. He is ready to guide and ready to provide as a loving father. We can come to him because he's a good God. He wants to be generous. He wants to help us. But then James says in verse number six, he says, but when you ask, let him ask in faith. That is, if you're going to ask God for wisdom, trust that God's going to give it to you. Trust that He's generous. Trust in His goodness. And He says, without doubting. Now, a lot of bad preaching has come from this text. 
But this whole idea of no doubting doesn't mean that you can't have doubts. It's not like you have to psych yourself up and say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. I'm not saying that. The idea of doubting is something we're actually going to find in chapter 2. The whole idea of doubting there is essentially having split loyalties. He's going to talk about it later on as having double-mindedness. The whole idea of double-mindedness in the Greek literally is to be two-souled. To have one soul that believes in God and the other soul that doesn't believe in God. And he says that a double-minded man is, is unstable. He's the guy who can't decide what he wants to do. God, help me, give me wisdom, but while I'm waiting, I'm going to figure out something else. And what happens is that a person that's doubting is going back and forth. They're like a, like a wave of the sea. They're getting driven and tossed. So, so I'm going to trust God, and then another wind of, of doubt comes and hits me, and I'm not going to trust Him anymore. I'm going to trust Him, I'm not going to trust Him anymore. I'm going to trust Him, I'm not going to trust Him anymore. They're like the guy in Chick-fil-A that can't decide what to get. Should I get a grilled spicy? Should I get a fried spicy? Should I get this? Should I get that? Should I get a chocolate milkshake? Should I get a cookies and cream milkshake? Everybody knows you're supposed to get cookies and cream. And this person is there and they're vacillating this way, that way. And you're like, good God, man, make up your mind. Or maybe you're in a line at Disney World and, and there's this place where you can decide, if, is this line quicker or is that line quicker? Is this line quicker or that line quicker? You stand there in front of this, behind this person, you're like, pick a line. And here James is saying, listen, if you're going to ask God for wisdom, it needs to be God or nothing. He says, you don't want to be a double-minded man. You need to depend upon God and not be, not be someone who goes this way and that way. If you want God's help, God will give you His help, but you need to really depend on Him to give you help and not lean on your own understanding. Now again, I don't want you to get this idea that you cannot have some doubts. James is not saying that you have to ask God for wisdom and trust God with it and still not have any kind of doubt in your mind. James is not saying that we're to have perfect faith. He's not saying that we're to have great faith. He's just saying that we're, have, we're to have faith in a great God. That's who we're to have faith in, a great God. It's not great faith God wants, but faith in a great God. James says we come to Him in the midst of our trials, in the midst of, of the, the horribleness of our lives, and we ask God for wisdom because that's the resource that we need. We need clarity. We need to see. We need His guidance and we need His perspective. And, and we come to Him and we depend upon Him and we cling upon Him. He'll give it to us. Because what? that's what we need the most. And I want to illustrate this with a Bible story. Jesus just came down from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. They get to the foot of the hill and there, the, there's a big argument going on. There's this man who's brought his son to Jesus' disciples, and they didn't know what to do with him. They, they were trying whatever they could to cure the boy, and they couldn't cure the boy. And finally, we pick up in chapter 9 of Mark, verse 20, and they brought it, the boy to Jesus. So Jesus come down from the, from the mountain. And when the spirit, this is a demon spirit, saw Jesus, he immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Now, some of you think your kids are demon-possessed. This kid really was. Verse 21. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? So, Jesus, did, he knew how long it was. He's a great physician. But here's a great physician. He wants this man to, to, he wants to let it out of this man's mouth to think this through. And he says, from childhood, verse 22. 
And he has been, it, it, since, since this kid, since this boy was a child, it's cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. This kid had burn marks on him. See, Satan always wants to kill you. He wants to destroy your life. And so, this dad is seeing his son. It's been going on for years. Have some of you all had trials that have gone on for years? Maybe even with your own children? Do you see this man? He, he, he's, he, went, he probably went to the doctor. He said, doctor, what am I supposed to do? This, this boy of mine, he's, he's demon-possessed. He's foaming at the mouth. He tries to kill himself. He's trying to drown himself and burn himself and probably cut himself. And the doctor's like, I don't know what to do. Then the guy shows up to the disciples and says, hey, disciples, fix him. And they're like, I don't, there's nothing we can do. Comes to Jesus and here's what he says. He's exasperated. And he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He didn't just say have compassion on him. See, because when your baby's hurting, you're hurting. Right, mamas? Right, daddies? Have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if, I, if you can, if you can, don't you know who you're talking to? All things are possible to the one who believes. Isn't that what James is saying? And immediately the father of the child cried out. He's yelling. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. You feel that moment with the father? He looks at Jesus and he says, if you can. That's where his faith was. He was at least honest with Jesus. He wasn't faking it. He was like... My faith at this moment is just if you can. It's not I know you can. Some of you right now, with Jesus, it's just if you can help me, Jesus. If you don't mind. It's not I know you can. It's if you can faith. And most of us in the pews, that's probably where we're sitting at is if you can faith, not I know you can faith. And here he was struggling to believe, but yet he still had a desire to believe in Jesus. And when he struggled with that belief and was honest with Jesus, Jesus steps up. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw the crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. And the dad's like, Jesus, I didn't want you to kill him. I want you to save him. The doctors could have killed him. I could have killed him. I wanted you to save him. See, his faith. But then verse 27. But Jesus took the young boy by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. You say, what does that have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you. That if you are here this morning and you are struggling in the midst of your trial, the best thing you can do is to continue to desire to believe. Is to continue to to live your life as if you believe because the only bridge from our inadequacy to God's omnipotent power is faith. And Jesus took this man from being desperate for help to being totally dependent upon him and that's where he saw the power of God in his life. He says, listen, a double-minded man is unstable. If you go this way or that way, you're going to get nothing. But if you just cling on, when you just are out of hope, you put all your hope in me. And be honest and say, I believe God, but help my unbelief. 
that's when you're going to see the power of God displayed. And as you allow patience or steadfastness to have its full effect in your life, you're going to become more mature. Here's the question. Do you think that that situation changed that man's life? He had more faith because of the trial than he had before the trial. And in your life, you're going to have more faith and you're going to cling closer to God and you're going to be more dependent upon Him when you're wounded, when you're limping, when you're scared. You can trust Him. And so that you get to verse number 12 and the Bible says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. This is a beatitude. Those who endure hardship and yet trust in God, totally dependent upon Him, they're blessed. They will receive a crown of life that one day in heaven they're going to go and they're going to be free from all suffering and everything sad is going to be untrue and the only thing weighing them down is the crown of Jesus' righteousness. And so this is a promise that God has made to those who love Him. And as I read about this blessed man, all I could think of is Jesus. Because in my life, I don't remain steadfast very well. In my life, I'm not necessarily sure that I stand the test well. How can I stand the test well? I don't have the resources in myself, but, but I look at the truly blessed man, the one who truly remained steadfast when he was under trial. The one who never faltered, who never failed, who never wavered, who never changed, but the one who stayed the course. The, the true and perfect wisdom of God who came to us in our foolishness with His graciousness. That's Jesus. See, the only reason that you and I could ever wear the crown of life is because Jesus wore the crown of thorns. The only reason that we could ever love Him is because He first loved us. And the only reason that we could ever count our trials as joy is because He counted His ultimate trial as His joy. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us run in with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that's set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Listen, my friends, don't just see Jesus as your example. See Jesus as your Savior. Because Jesus went through the worst hells for you so you can trust in Him. Whatever trial you're facing, whatever hardship you're enduring, pales in comparison to what He endured for you. And in His darkest hour, He thought of you. So that in your darkest hour, you can trust in Him. Trust Him. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him. How I've proved Him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust Him more. Wherever you are, whatever situation you're going through, don't just see Him as an example. Trust Him as your Savior. He will get you through. Turn to Him. Be dependent upon Him. Say to Him with all honesty this morning, I believe, but help my unbelief. And He will save you. Maybe that's you this morning. You've never come to a place where you've fully given your life to Jesus, but you're like that man and you say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He today can save you. He can change your life. He can transform you. He can take you from death and bring you into life. Whatever situation you're going through, nothing is too hard for Him. Nothing is impossible for Jesus. Trust Him. James says, count it all joy. Trust in Jesus.
Let's all stand.